Uh, we're in Luke chapter 15 this morning, so if you would turn to Luke 15, we are continuing on in Luke chapter 15 with a uh, group of parables of the Lord Jesus. If you're a guest with us this morning or you're catching up with us, uh, we are still in our series of the Harmony of the Gospels, where we are following along the, the timeline of Jesus chronologically. And right now we are in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And right now we, uh, the, the best that we know, he is in the regions of Galilee or Perea uh, on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, and he will get there soon. Um, and we are looking at his ministry in those regions with Luke chapter 15. We're not told exactly where that is, but we know on the the timeline, as we look at Jesus' life as a whole, uh, that he is ministering somewhere in that region and in that area. And uh, we know that he did that before he uh, entered into Jerusalem to suffer and die for sinners. Um, once again, in our passage this morning, we see a conflict between Jesus uh, and his righteousness and his authority and his power and the contrasting Pharisees and scribes. Um, and we will see just at the very forefront in Luke chapter 15, uh, this conflict that arises, which Jesus uses once again as a teaching opportunity, not only for the Pharisees, not only for his disciples that are with him, but for the church and for unbelievers. And so let me read Luke chapter 15 this morning. And uh, we will get into this passage. This is the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him with them. He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." If you uh, understand the, the audience of Luke, you'll understand that uh, just as Luke was writing to Theophilus in his gospel account, he's writing to this same Greek man in, uh, in the book of Acts. And he's writing to remind them that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is the Son of God who comes and offers salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And so you can imagine that as Theophilus 
uh, read this account, uh, there are um, different ways by which Luke points back to uh, the opportunity for both Jews and Gentiles to receive Christ. And as Jesus is um, engaging in this passage in Luke chapter 15, automatically we see the appeal to the Gentile audience. Jesus is surrounded. He has welcomed and invited the outcasts of society. He has welcomed and invited the tax collectors and the sinners. And if you'll notice in chapter 15 verse 1, they are drawing near to him to hear him. He has something to say to them and they are wanting and willing to listen to Jesus. The contrast is the Pharisees and the scribes, which are going the opposite direction. The tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes are leading away from Jesus in their attitudes towards him, grumbling and murmuring, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You think the Gentiles reading this were automatically connected to this story? As people who felt as outcasts, as people who felt as if they weren't the ones worthy of the gospel, and yet Jesus, uh, by the uh, amazing compassion and love, is receiving them, is welcoming them, and not just receiving them and welcoming them, but eating with them and teaching them. Saying, in a way, the word of God and the truth of the gospel and what I'm coming to accomplish is not just for Jews. You are able to receive that love as well. You are able to receive that grace as well. And so the audience was captivated. But his enemies were grumbling and complaining. Let's just stop right there and just say, Church, if you live in such a way that your life is consumed with grumbling and complaining, then welcome yourself to the table with the Pharisees. Because that was the mantra of their life by which to constantly find things in their life that was hard and difficult and in conflict with the Lord Jesus. But the attitude of Christ, our Savior and our Lord, is to receive those that are outcasts, those that are downtrodden, those that have difficulties in their life, despair. And what does he do? He shows love to them and he shows compassion to them. And what we have here with Luke is we have this... Um, really, all of chapter 15 is... is consists of three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. All three of these parables have the exact same meaning. Matter of fact, it would be easy and yet extremely difficult at the same time to preach this whole chapter because it's one message. It's one major message. But because the story of the prodigal son is such a lengthy text, I'm going to handle that next week. But it will sound very familiar. On the outset, these parables 
are not always taught the same way, unfortunately, as is a lot of Scripture. A lot of times we read these parables and we look at these parables as if they represent our life or the lives of people that we know. We look at this story of the prodigal son. We look at the story of the lost sheep and and we think about those people in our lives that are so uh, endeared to us, that we love so deeply and we think, maybe this represents their life. And oftentimes we've heard passages uh, or, or, or pastors teach this passage in such a way that the prodigal son and the lost sheep represent Christians who have gone astray and wayward in their sin. And I think that we need to be very careful to look at this passage in the context by which Jesus gives it, by the Holy Spirit gives it, by Luke, as Luke gives it. And that is, Jesus is surrounded by sinners and tax collectors who do not belong to the kingdom. He is speaking in such a way that he is relaying not people that already belong to the kingdom... The context is not the disciples are sitting around him. Luke is clear to show us that these tax collectors and sinners, those who would be outside the kingdom, will hear a message and hear a truth about Jesus and and the saving work that he accomplishes in the world and the joy that God has when sinners come to repentance. Now, that sinner coming to repentance could very well be your son or your daughter or your mother or your father. But by all means, this passage is not speaking about wayward Christianity. This, this passage, honestly, is not, these uh, headings in this section of Scripture, I don't even believe are entitled correctly. The parable of the lost sheep appears to be the subject of the matter is the sheep. Or the lost coin, the subject matter seems to be the coin. The the prodigal son, the subject matter seems to be the son. It's not about any of those. The the main subject, the main character that is emphasized in those passages is not the sheep, but the shepherd. And the love that the shepherd has for that which he possesses. It's not the coin that is the most important. It's the woman who seeks diligently for that coin. And it's not particularly the son or the sons in the parable. But it's the father and his great love for his son who returns to him. That's why the the theme and the The main truth of this passage is is that our God rejoices in all of His character and all of His attribute rejoices when sinners repent and come to Him. And so we're going to look at three truths today. And I know I'm going against tradition and I'm going against men that were, are much more uh, intelligent than I am and understand the Scriptures more, but I would like to change, for the sake of this passage, 
the title headings. We, I want to call this the parable of the steadfast shepherd. The, the parable of the seeking stewardess and the parable of the forgiving father. Because those titles, in my opinion, highlight our great God and the message that he has for us about his joy when sinners repent. This message is for all people. For the lost, it's a message of hope. The hope of this passage today rests in the opportunity that a lost sinner turns from their sins, receives the gospel of grace that is offered to them through Jesus Christ alone. If you're here this morning or you're listening online, there is still an opportunity to turn from your sins and be found by the great shepherd. The father is depicted in these passages as rejoicing For sinners who turn from their wicked ways and turn towards Him. Ezekiel chapter 33, the prophet speaks for the Lord. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Can you hear the the deep longing of our God that that desires for people to turn away from the wickedness that that ensnares them and, and is pure rebellion against their Creator and to turn back to God? This message in Ezekiel was particularly to a wayward people. A people that had not believed in God, that had been rebellious of Him. And even though they were in covenant with God, they turned to false idols. And the message of of the, the Old Testament prophets was to put their faith and trust in God, to believe in Him and, and to trust in Him and to, to turn away, to repent and put their faith in Christ. Is no different than the message of the New Testament. Where Paul says that he went around preaching repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this message is for the lost. Because by understanding the character of God, you must understand that in God's character, He must punish sin. That he is a just God and he must punish the evil and the wickedness of our lives. And yet equally, just as he is just, he is also loving, he is also merciful, and he is offering the only way by which you must be saved. And that is through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many who became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This message is also for the church. It's for the church because it encourages both our position in Christ and it motivates us to our purpose. In our position, we are in Christ. We are the lost sheep in this story. 
We are the lost coin. We are the prodigal son. We are the ones that were lost and abandoned in sin, enslaved into a a dark, vile world, and God comes as our shepherd and rescues us. We are the sheep, and we rejoice and celebrate because of what God has done in offering us a grace that we don't deserve. And in our position in Christ, it leads to our purpose. That we would have the heart of the God who has saved us. And if God in His compassion and His love is to rejoice when sinners repent and turn to Him, then by all means, those who, have belonging, who belong to Him, who have experienced and tasted His grace, we also should rejoice when sinners repent. That our compassion and our purpose in this world is to love and lavish love upon the sinners of this world, sharing the truth of the gospel with them to, so that we might rejoice when they come to Christ. Not to be complacent. Not to be apathetic. Not to be so overwhelmed with sin that it just angers us. But instead, to to be reminded of this great compassion that God has for us that we should have for those in this world who are lost. So this is why we look this morning first at God's joyous purpose. God's joyous purpose. It's not hard to see that in the first two parables, which we're going to focus on today, the lost sheep and the lost coin, it's, it's not hard to see that in that parable, there's the theme of possession. These, this lost sheep belongs to the shepherd. This lost coin belongs to the woman and is lost. And I couldn't help but, but think about the, the purpose of God before the foundation of the world to, to provide a way for sinners who are lost to be reconciled to God. Listen, you were created in such a way that you already, at birth, belong to God. He possesses you. And yet sin has created a void, a, a divide, a separation So that in salvation you are brought back. You are reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a reconciliation. And in that reconciliation, we see the the beautiful purpose of God coming to fruition. But the purpose of God, the purpose of God sending His Son into the world is different than a lot of us expect and understand. See, the source of joy that the Father has in salvation is found, the foundation of that joy is not in us. The foundation of that joy is in the Son. The Father's foundation of His joy and salvation is in the accomplishment of what the Son did on the earth. 
His Son was glorified through death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The suffering before the glory. And so the Father is glorified and finds joy in the Son because redemption was accomplished. And the Son is likewise joyous and rejoices not only in his own suffering, but he rejoices because the Father's plan before the foundation of the world to redeem a people and to be gifted to the Son, that plan is accomplished. You are a part of that plan if you believe, believe and trust in Jesus Christ. You as the lost sheep who are rescued are a part of that plan. And so the Son rejoices in the Father because the plan is accomplished. And the, and the Father rejoices in the Son because of His faithfulness to the plan. And we are only the recipients of the blessings of that plan. And so unfortunately, as the songs oftentimes go in, in churches today, we would be more correct in saying that Jesus on the cross was thinking of the Father, not thinking of you. Yes, He was dying for the sins of His people, but His ultimate purpose and His ultimate goal was to bring glory to the Father. And that is His greatest joy. It's an eternal joy. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, He's praying to the Father. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to, to give eternal life to all You have given Him. And this is eternal life that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We have to understand that the Father, Son, and Spirit existed eternally before time ever began with a perfect joy and intimacy and belonging and fellowship and, and all those things balled up into their uh, deity. One God and three persons existing perfectly, rejoicing intimately together. That is the true source of joy. Let's not turn the salvation of our God for sinners into a man-centered gospel. But instead, let's give glory to the Father and the Son and the Spirit for all that they accomplished and be thankful that God has allowed us to be recipients. To be the one who has possessed us by His grace before the foundation of the world. That's why the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
because you and I are possessed by Christ, because his purposes in the world were to come and to save sinners, to glorify the Father and give us the, the benefits of, his, of that salvation, that one day we will be in his presence forever and we will experience a fullness of joy and that fullness of joy has always existed between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And again, we're just going to be recipients of that joy in all eternity. Just kind of casual bystanders of what God has experienced in himself forever. That is a God-centered gospel. But secondly, not only his joyous purpose, but his joyous pursuit. The parable of the steadfast shepherd and the seeking stewardess are very familiar stories to us. You'll notice that one is about a man, one is about a woman. This is just a literary way to appeal to um, different audiences. God is giving us a, a picture of a man and a woman, just like he gives us a picture of a man like Daniel in exile, and then he later gives us a picture of like Esther in exile. It relates to us as both man and woman. And in these parables, we see the joyous pursuit of our God towards sinners. Understand, first of all, that that pursuit comes when Jesus Christ steps out of heaven and comes down to earth as part of the great redemptive plan of God that he's coming down to pursue you. To show you grace. To seek you out. Notice first of all in, this, in these parables, and we're going to look at these together. Notice first of all the number. The numbers. You have one sheep versus 99 sheep. And you have one coin versus 10 coins. Now if you're a shepherd, you can imagine that in your sheepfold, 99 sheep are pretty overwhelming. But you're not content with 99 sheep when one of your sheep is missing. We go into a sheepfold in, in the Middle East today, we look at a, a sheepfold and we see 99 sheep and, and the shepherd says, yeah, I'm missing one. You're pretty content with going, that's still a lot of sheep. <laughs> you're good, man. Because the sheep don't belong to you. The sheep and the name of that, that sheep, it doesn't matter to you, but it matters to the shepherd. See, we're not just numbers to God, we are names to Him. If we follow after Christ, it's because our names, the Bible says, were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, verse 8. John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. God has pursued us in our greatest times of despair and depravity, and he rescues us from the vicious devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And upon, a, upon finding us, he calls us by name, and we come to him because he intimately knows us. 
And we are supernaturally given new life whereby we know him and we respond to his call. Church, if you think that you respond to the call of God by your own power and strength, then you do not understand the definition of deadness in Ephesians chapter 2. If you believe that at your salvation, it was by your power and strength that you came to Christ on your own volition and will without his uh, sovereign work and power over you, then I would encourage you next time to go to a funeral and at the casket stand there over a dead body and call to that dead body to come forward and expect something amazing to happen, even though nothing will happen. Because dead people do not respond to anything. No, but when the great shepherd called you out of darkness, he spoke your name because he already knew you. And he called you to come forth in your in, in new spiritual life. You came forth. And you were rescued and you were saved. And so it's by his glory and by, or for his glory and by his grace that he pursued you. Because you're not just a number, you're a name. Similarly, the woman with the lost coin. Most commentators believe this is the, the Greek drachma. It's the, the, it's believed, although the value changed throughout history, it's believed at this time that this was a similar uh, or equal value to the Roman denarii. And, and so that, that would equ- uh, equate to a day's wage. If we look at uh, little hints here in this passage, uh, the woman uh, has to light a lamp to look for the, the, um, the lost coin, whether it's at night and she's looking at, in the dark of night, or she has no windows because she's poor. I would lean to the latter description. She's sweeping the house. It's probably a dirt floor. She has no windows, which speaks of her poverty, which means that one coin that's a day's wage is a massive amount of wealth to her. One out of ten coins does not seem a lot to us. We oftentimes drop pennies. We drop dimes. We don't really worry about it. This woman has lost at least a day's wage out of the ten days' wages that she has saved up. This is of great value to her. And so not only should we notice the number, but we should notice the steadfastness that she is diligently searching Until she finds it. The shepherd searches until he finds the lost sheep. Verse 4. The woman uh, diligently searches until she finds the coin. Verse 8. Aren't you thankful of the steadfastness of the Lord that he diligently sought you out? Not that you were lost and and he didn't know where you were. No, he knew exactly where you were. He knew exactly the thoughts in your mind. He knew exactly the depravity that you possessed and the sin that you were engaged in. And before the foundation of the world, he wrote your name in the book of life. And the day that you were saved was the day exactly when God had planned for you to be saved. And we rejoice in his steadfastness to carry out that plan. That's why it's for his glory.
And so he comes to us and he pursues us with, with intimacy, knowing our name, with steadfastness, being faithful to complete the work on the cross. And sinner, understand if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, understand that Romans chapter 5 says that he shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Which means there is no pre-cleansing ceremony that you have to go through. There is no ritual of preparation that you must do. No, instead, we understand that Christ died for wretched sinners while they were sinners. Christ saves us in our wretchedness and then in new life transforms us into the image of that he reflects. And so the only thing that is necessary, the only thing that the Bible speaks of as we read in Ezekiel 33 and as we see in this passage is that sinners must repent. That's our prayer. Whether it's our lost neighbor or our lost son or daughter, We don't need to encourage them to go to church. We don't need to encourage them to read their Bible per se. We need to encourage them to believe in Jesus. We oftentimes take these steps and we we put these um, heavy burdens upon people as as if, if they accomplish these steps, they will be saved. And yet the gospel is repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, going to church, they will hear that gospel. Reading their Bible, they will hear that gospel. But listen to me, nine times out of ten, if you tell a lost person, hey, brother, let me encourage you to go read your Bible, and they go to Leviticus, and they start reading their Bible, they're not getting very far. Not to say that Leviticus cannot open their heart and mind by the power of the Holy Spirit, but what I'm telling you is we must encourage people to to, uh, or we must share with people the, the truth of the gospel message and encourage them to repent, to turn from their wicked ways, and to believe in the Jesus by which God's word describes and reveals to us. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, rejoice in the joyous pursuit of the Lord in your life. As the lonely sheep, unaware of the shepherd to which you belonged. You were, you were far away from him, rebellious. You were on the narrow path of destruction. Your enemy had surrounded you. His eyes were intent on killing you. His mouth was salivating to devour you. And the shepherd by which you did not know came and rescued you picked you up as a weak and wounded crippled sheep and brought you upon his his shoulders and carried you safely in his arms in salvation. That is the amazing love that we sing in the hymn book. That's the amazing message that Charles Wesley so eloquently wrote. Long my imprisoned spirit lay Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. 
My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And lastly, not only his joyous purpose and his joyous pursuit, but finally his joyous praise. It's undeniable that the response in all three of the parables is a celebration. It's a party. It's a time to reflect upon what has happened, to see an amazing miracle, and to celebrate. The shepherd carries the sheep back. He doesn't just lay the sheep down and... and care for his wounds and, and, and kind of push him off to go congregate with the other sheep. No, he gathers his friends and his neighbors and he says, rejoice with me. For I found my lost, or found my sheep that was lost. The woman, again, gathers her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. That sounds so strange to us. I mean, if your neighbor knocked on your door and said, rejoice with me, I found the hairbrush that I've been looking for forever, you would think that they were insane. Or, rejoice, I I found this, this necklace, and they show you this necklace, and you're like, I wouldn't really be having a celebration over that. But what if the hairbrush was an heirloom passed down from generation to generation in your family and it was not only the most valuable thing that you owned uh, financially, but it was the most valuable thing that you owned because of the personal nature of it. Now the story changes. Now the intimacy and the connection to it lends to praise I can imagine that the friends and the neighbors of this shepherd understood as as brother shepherds to say, man, I get it. Our job is to go find the lost sheep. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. I understand what it means when that lost sheep wanders away and and you find it and you realize that that valuable and intimate uh, animal it's been rescued that some animal, did, some, some predator did not take it and, and devour it. And so you rejoice. These other shepherds understand that. Or this woman in her poverty. This woman in her poverty gathers others in her community, which more than likely are also impoverished. And she tells them, listen, I had saved up this life savings here and I, and I lost one coin and then I found it. And, and the other people understanding the value of that coin would rejoice. Maybe they're even a little covetous. They're like, man, I really wish I had that coin. But there's a reason to rejoice. In church, it is only because of the grace and the mercy that you have received, can you understand the reason for rejoicing? When a sinner repents and comes to Christ, 
When he is transformed from death to new life, you understand that on a personal level. And so we hear those stories. And just as confession time, as confession time, like I'm skeptical. If I could just be honest with you this morning, like I hear people coming to Christ and I'm skeptical. And you know why I'm skeptical? I think for good reason. I don't want to be skeptical, but I'm skeptical because I know there's people out there not preaching a true gospel. And I don't want to be that way. And, and, and if, if one of you came to me and you said, hey, I, I led my, my son to the Lord or, or I, I led my, my uh, family member or my coworker or whoever to the Lord, I would, I would rejoice because I understand by your membership in this body and your understanding of the gospel that you would share rightly the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then I remember this week, that growing up in the setting that I grew up in, I wasn't hearing a good gospel. I wasn't hearing an accurate gospel. And here I stand. And I think the Lord showed me this morning, or this, this, this week as I was studying, that my skepticism is oftentimes robbing me of the joy of what God is doing in a very mysterious and profound way. I don't know who he's saving at the Billy Graham revival evangelist rallies, even though their method and the ways that they did that for centuries isn't necessarily the thing that I would do myself. And so with a discerning heart, I think the Lord was really challenging me this week to rejoice in the possibility of His work in the world, even if we can't see the full fruition of it. That when a a convention gives me a number of how many people have come to Christ, instead of me being just the skeptic and the pessimist, to rejoice that in that number, if not all of them, praise the Lord, a great deal of them or a large amount of them by God's sovereign power in the world are true conversions where He is expanding His kingdom and His glory. I want to rejoice as God rejoices, knowing that in my frailty and my weakness, I may rejoice inadequately, but I would rather rejoice inadequately than be a pessimist when I should be rejoicing. So we should be quick to discern, but slow to be skeptical of rejoicing with God's work and salvation. And maybe that's not you, but that's me. And God wants us to have his heart. He has given us a transformed life by which his heart resonates within us through his spirit 
And God knows who are his. And we do not. And clearly, we are giving we are given clear evidence in this passage who are not his. I mean, when it's spelled out for us, it's spelled out for us. And Jesus spells it out in verse 7 of chapter 15. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now let me just stop there for a second. That tends to be confusing as we read that on the, just at the first glance. Who are these 99 people? Are they the 99 sheep? Are they truly 99 righteous persons? Well, again, the context is the comparison between the sinners who surround Jesus that are drawing near to him and the Pharisees who are grumbling and complaining and conflicting with Jesus. And so it seems best to understand and interpret those 99 people as representing not 99 individual Pharisees, but the Pharisees and the religious leaders and those who stood against Christ, who in their self excuse me, in their self-righteousness did not believe that they needed repentance. Matter of fact, the most confusing word in there is one Greek letter that is, rep, that is translated more than or rather than. And so that passage is confusing because it sounds like it says that there is more joy in heaven over sinners who repent and a lesser joy over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's confusing. Is there really joy in heaven over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? Some people would say that 99 persons are angels who need no repentance. But again, context is king. What Jesus is saying is these Pharisees think they need no repentance. And so the better interpretation is this. I'll tell you there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents rather than 99 people, righteous persons, who need no repentance. So you take out the more, and you put rather than, which is a fair translation. Matter of fact, you can notate two more places by which this makes sense. Luke chapter 17, verses 2. Jesus says, if anyone calls one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, rather than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Same word. You wouldn't say more than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The better interpretation is rather than. It is an alternative comparison. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 14, 19, Paul says, Nevertheless, in church, I should rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Again, Not more than 10,000 words, rather than. 
So what's the point? Jesus is condemning these Pharisees because they are not reflecting as religious leaders of God's people the heart of God who rejoices when sinners repent. They're not reflecting that. They're like the fatalistic church who does not see a need to go and evangelize because of their reformed perspective. Thus they will not rejoice in the salvation of lost people. The Pharisees are like the people who don't want to associate with the lowly and the outcasts of this world. Just by chance that they may infect them or influence them in such a negative way. So we just bottle ourselves up in little communities and communes and not engage the world with the gospel out of fear of contamination. That's where the Pharisees were. And so Jesus is just condemning them. You guys think that you need no repentance? But I'm telling you that the God of the universe, the God that you proclaim to follow, is one who rejoices when a sinner is turned from their sin and and turns to Christ, who truly exemplifies repentance and faith, something that these Pharisees desperately needed. And so, sinner, do not be like these Pharisees who think that they're standing before God as good since they have inherited from their fathers the benefits of salvation. Do not consider yourself a born-again believer in Jesus Christ because you performed some tradition or followed some guideline by which you believe you are a Christian. If you have not turned from your sin and followed Christ, then you are a lost sheep. And you will face the wrath and the punishment of God for your sins. Like Pastor Adam stated last week in his sermon, we must be willing to surrender all to Jesus Christ, even our own very lives for his cause. And as a church, let us not live like the Pharisees that wanted to distance themselves from sinners. Instead of living as pure, self-righteous people, let us seek the law so that we can inform them of who God is and who He sent His only Son to be the propitiation for their sin. Big word, but it just means that Jesus gave His own life as a ransom, as a payment for the wages of sin of his people. Let's make evangelism a priority in our lives. Not just on Sundays and not just to check a box, but so that we can rejoice in sinners who come to Christ. And let us by all means worship and celebrate now as we are about to take the Lord's Supper, remembering our lostness as a sheep, our lostness as a coin, and the beautiful grace and love of God and the joy that he has Because Jesus Christ has saved us. Let's pray.